college is a time when students start to decide upon a career path. And how could rock and roll music... And that's where the song should have ended. Not be George Michael's. So, I guess we all got a little carried away. You sure? We all ended at the same time. Yeah, well, it's because you all sped up together. <laughs> now, you know, if I was playing in your band, I would say, you know, hey, let's do the whole fast and loose with tempo thing. 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 Oh, hello. I didn't see you come in there. Welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. My name is Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, the winner, Maddox. Hello, Anthony. Oh, hey, Andy. How's it going? It's going good. You are uh, you got a good winning streak going on in our Wednesday night drafts. But, you know, back-to-back, you went 3-0 last week in the Greenless Cube we talked about, and then this week you were on the winning team, and I believe contributed a winning record of our team draft of Allison's Peasant Cube. I'm doing my best here, but yeah, I definitely can't take all the credit this week. Uh, my team really carried their weight. It was a pretty kind of a blowout, you know. It seemed like maybe in the second round we our team might be able to bring it back a little bit, but uh, the ending record was pretty pretty abysmal. You, you kind of wrecked us. Doing what I can. You, uh, I, I really like team drafting. I think you do too, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's one of the really almost the best way to draft. Really, it's just it's so fun to have to be able to collaborate. I mean, I, I like the fact that Magic is a is a one on one solitary game of. Mind versus mind, but it's really fun when you get to you know compare your pool with your teammates and talk about how to build it, what the last cuts are, and I think it's a very eye-opening just to get chances to talk very concretely about magic and learn from learn from our friends and peers. Yeah, I mean, all in all, it's like it's not that different. You're still just drafting a deck, playing games one v one, but uh, just like that experience of actually having people that are on your side and you can like discuss tricky plays or mulligans or good ways to uh, try and combat your opponent's decks that your teammates have actually seen a little bit of really just makes the whole experience uh, a lot more fun especially in this time where we're all a little bit can use some more social interaction i also i think it makes the bad beats easier to swallow for me i'm not sure if that's true for you but i had a i had some bad hands and some bad draws in the first game and being able to share that with my teammates felt like it felt more like haha this is just some bad luck you know can't get around this as opposed to me just sitting there alone suffering that was just the story of our match. So you were the one the one person that got a, got a match win on me. And I had the same situation. I was playing almost entirely a monocolored deck with a tiny splash. Uh, and of course I draw the perfect hand, except my two lands are in the splash color. So you're saying my win wasn't purely attributable to my incredible mind and skill and strategy? It was actually you just drew bad? It can be both. It can be both. We're going to talk a little bit about, I think, our match we played later on in this episode, because it's a little bit of an inspiration for our topic this week. We are going to be talking about tempo, first of all, what the heck it is, because I feel like this is one of the terms that is most often misunderstood and people define in weirdly different ways. It has one of the least concrete definitions, I feel like, of a lot of the terms we talk about in Magic. And then we're going to talk about how you might consider tempo when designing your cube and how you might take, how, how, how the idea of tempo might affect the cards you decide to include or exclude from your own cube environments. I thought, weren't we going to do uh, top five cube heuristics? <laughs> okay, look, we're, we're going we're gonna to go there. I did not see <laughs> the Limited Resources podcast that happened to call their episode Holiday Potpourri when I named and scheduled our episode, which we called Cube Potpourri, episode, to go up uh, because I, I just, there's something in the air, okay? I did not see that first, and when I saw it, I was like, crap, everyone's going to think I just saw... That episode of Limited Resources and just scooped the word potpourri, but actually it was a total coincidence. Hmm. All right. It was. It was a I coincidence. Mean, what's, what's, what's more shameful, that, that you uh, cribbed the name or that you're not up to date on Limited Resources? I don't know. It's one or the other. Actually, I do, I do kind of think an episode on cube heuristics could be an interesting topic for us in the future, but, but not this week because we are not just we'll do followers. We'll do Yeah, we'll do seven or 69 cube heuristics. We're not talking about that this week. We're talking about tempo. But first, we have a pack one, pick one from a listener submitted cube. And this week, we are doing our listener Garrett slash Lemem's 450 card unpowered legacy cube. And the cube list is among the it's it's in the range of like a typical Power Max cube. Uh, I think Garrett even described it in his email to me as just another boring, you know, legacy cube. 
But uh, one thing that is different is, and I'm not sure if this is intentional, but, uh, but Garrett's default draft format on Cube Cobra is for six players instead of eight. And so instead of three packs of 15 cards, it is four packs of 11 cards. And I just realized that the sample pack generator on Cube Cobra uses your default draft format. So we're going to be doing a pack one, pick one from Garrett's Cube from a pack of 11 cards as opposed to 15 and see where we land, Anthony. Sound good? Sounds good to me. The pack is as follows. Clifftop Retreat, Grackmaw Skyclave Ravager, Recurring Nightmare, Thraben Inspector, Vivian Arcbow Ranger, Doom Whisperer, Grave Titan, Languish, Dragon Skull Summit, Day of Judgment, and we got a new card, Anthony, Court of Bounty. That's our pack of 11 cards, and with the context that we are drafting four packs of 11, and we are going to be playing a six-player draft format, what is your? what are the cards you're looking at, Anthony? What are your top contenders? Uh, it's very notable that this pack is very heavy in very good black cards. Uh, Grave Titan and Languish and Recurring Nightmare, and to some degree Doom Whisper, although I think that reads a little bit better than it plays a lot of the time, are all very strong cards. This this pack looks so heavy in black, I'm almost tempted to go in that mindset of, like, let's just start with Day of Judgment, because we think the, the people to our left are probably going to go into black, but... I, even in this case, I don't think I can bring myself to do that, and I'm just going to take Grave Titan. On Grave Titan, all right. I will say that I think the cards jumping out at me from this pack are Recurring Nightmare, Day of Judgment, are the two that are kind of like tops for me. Grave Titan is a very, very good finisher, but I have just found that I often don't have to prioritize these kinds of cards in cube. I will get good finishers, and board wipes are really powerful. And then Recurring Nightmare is, I don't think the most powerful card in this pack, but it is a very fun option. If I start with Recurring Nightmare and just decide I'm going to build around this little engine that lets me to loop creatures and back and forth, that's not not a bad place to start. And it does have a very, very high ceiling. There are some draws with a Recurring Nightmare deck that your opponents just really have no hope of dealing with. If they have no way to counter the Recurring Nightmare or anything like that, it can be this very non-interactive engine that you just run over your opponent with. So those are the two cards I'm looking at. And I got to say... If I was trying to spike this draft, for, for no reason relating to the density of this pack in terms of black cards and color distribution, I'm just going to start on Day of Judgment. I think a, a four-mana board wipe is about as premium a card as you can get in an environment like this. And if I'm trying to have a little more fun, maybe I start a recurring nightmare and try and do something a little goofier. How do you feel about this green court? That's the only card here I've actually never played with at all. You've played with Grackmaw before? In limited. Okay, okay, sure. <laughs> that counts. That's translatable experience. Yeah, we talked about the the courts and sort of our general impressions about Monarch in 101 in past episodes, but I will say specifically of the green court, I think it is one of the least, well, I think it's one of the least powerful options I'm interested in. I mean, it fits in this kind of like cheat deck, but the fact that this court doesn't protect the Monarch at all, it makes it a, a more of a liability than some of the other courts that at least give you bodies or have impact the board in some more more meaningful way that can potentially protect the monarch. I feel like this one would be especially win more, and yeah, it's not super high on the power ranking list for me. Yeah, that makes sense. Whereas, for example, the the white one I think is very very powerful. I'm just not playing it because uh, I don't like how powerful and polarizing it is. The green one I don't actually think is super high for me in terms of power level. The floor is kind of a four-mana explore, which is not really where you want to be. Let's be clear. The floor is a four-mana explore that gives your opponent the monarch, which is really where we don't <laughs> want point. to be in Good any way. Good qualifi- qualification. All right, so you're on Grave Titan. I'm on Day of Judgment and or Recurring Nightmare. How am I feeling this morning? I'm feeling a little spiky this morning, so I'm going to start on Day of Judgment. Thank you, Garrett, for sending in your cube. Pack was a little bit, you know, I have no blue cards here and no red cards, so it is leaning in some weird color directions, but... That happens sometimes, Anthony. We have to, our pack one pick one segment has to reflect real life. You know, art art reflects life, and sometimes the packs just break this way. If you want to have your cube <laughs> on Lucky Paper Radio, you can send it to us at mail at luckypaper.co and include your pronouns, include how you want to be credited. Any other details about the cube, too, would also help. We have a nice little backlog of listener-submitted cubes, so uh, if you haven't heard yours and you have sent it in, don't worry. I have not lost your message, I promise. <laughs> glad we got through that quickly i hope garrett does not feel slighted by us not discussing the pack for longer but i we have a, a sort of complicated topic here and i'm excited to to get into it with you anthony so you kind of mentioned discussing this topic which is tempo and i'm curious why why this came to mind for you this week so this came to mind for two specific moments uh that came up in some of our uh, cube games over the last couple weeks 
On one hand, uh, I was talking again to uh, our friend James about his uh, Brea cube that we discussed a couple weeks ago, and how we had sort of said, like, well, you know, aggro isn't really supported in this cube. And I think that, you know, I feel a little bit bad about saying that. I think that's kind of a dismissive way to just sort of, like, lump a sort of cube together by saying, well, aggro isn't really supported here, let's just, you know, skip that. And I think the really important thing to reflect on is just that even though we were just trying to follow this heuristic of, as a player, trying to take our experience from past cubes and say, well, this certain kind of aggressive deck that relies on having a, a critical mass of jackal pups and goblin guides, that exact kind of deck that we're used to seeing isn't here. So we'll use that heuristic to try and uh, change our draft a little bit. But that being said, there it doesn't mean that you know you can't draft a more aggressive deck and you can't still put pressure on your opponent and beat them before they have uh, time to play all their cards. And then the second moment was this last week when we were playing the, uh, ooh, peasant or pauper? It's peasant. You're so <laughs> bad at this. <laughs> I'm going to put myself a post-it note on the monitor. Um, you just have to play a little bit of constructed pauper, because to my knowledge, there is no such thing as constructed peasant. I mean, there probably is, but it's not very widespread. It's not very widespread. Constructed pauper is a real codified format, though. You just got to play a little bit of that, and then you, uh, you'll get used to, to knowing that pauper is commons only, and peasant is commons and uncommons. Anyway, so when we're playing our match in this cube that has only commons and uncommons, it really felt at a certain point like the speed that we were doing anything just didn't matter. We really could just say, well, let's just both flip our decks over and see who has the more powerful card. And it really got so far to that point, I was just like... We were in a very stalled board, but I looked at what was left in my deck. I was going to be decking first because I'd drawn some extra cards, and I just knew the game was over. Either I was going to deck myself, or you'd find some way to break the board stall, uh, and that was that. Yeah, I think um, you can so see it really... at, like, 20 life with, like, maybe 11 or 14 <laughs> cards left in library, and we're just like, I have no outs. And that, yeah, I mean, I, I think you were right. I, my, my board was good, and my draws were going to be good, and you were going to deck yourself first if, if nothing else more aggressive happened before then. But yeah, it does happen sometimes. And hopefully that was game two, because uh, there's definitely still a lot of equity, because when you are scooping that early, you're giving your opponent a lot of information about what could be in your deck. So telling you, yeah, I definitely don't have a Wrath or like a way to get this last bit of damage through was uh, could have been a big leak on my part. Well, conversely, playing a game out that you have extremely low odds of winning, or no odds of winning, is also just going to show me more literal cards that are in your deck. I could come to That's the conclusion true. that you might not have an out from a board stall like that, but I'm not sure what... I mean, right, if, if I expect a Wrath or something, I might not overcommit to the board or things like that, but I feel like my sideboarding is probably more going to be influenced by knowledge of specific cards in your deck rather than assumptions about you not having board wipes. And we're playing Peasant, That's there true, are no board yeah. wipes, so what are you going to do? <laughs> there are two now. Commander Legends has really reshaped the format. That's true. We did get some. We did get some with Commander Legends, and they are in Allison's list. So I should not be so so assumptive about the number of board wipes in the format. So between these two moments, it really struck me that this is something that is really fundamental to like all of Magic, and especially as we we're both playing and designing cubes. This idea that it's sometimes not just a matter of what cards you have, but who can actually deploy them in the right order, have the right tempo uh, to be able to actually put pressure on your opponent and either beat them before they uh, actually have an ability to play all the cards, effectively gaining a lot of card advantage that way, or just putting them under pressure so they can't actually gain card advantage because they're forced to chump block or make suboptimal decisions. I want to talk a little bit about your mentioning of James's cube and our our sort of thing for the podcast last week where we said that aggro wasn't supported in our pack one pick one and we, we both kind of shied away from that. I understand what you're saying. We were like, oh, it feels a little bad to be dismissive of, of the cube. And I, I do think it's important to kind of separate, you know, the art from the artist, right? Like, I don't think we're ever saying it's a bad cube or James did a, made a mistake or whatever by saying that we don't think aggro is supportive. It's just kind of a fact of what the cards are. But to your point, there is always a most aggressive deck in any environment, right? Any cube, there's going to be a deck that is aiming to be a little faster, a little lower to the ground than some other decks. I've never seen a cube where the goal was literally like, just draft the most expensive cards, the greediest splashes, and that will always be the correct option. Even if you're playing a cube where the five color good stuff deck we've talked about is a very strong archetype, you still have to think about your curve. You still have to think about how am I going to block things early? How am I going to remove threats? You can't just say, I'm going to play the most powerful as in the the cards that affect the game the most regardless of their mana cost which would be sort of an environment where there literally is no no aggro or no sense of aggro so so it really depends on what we, what we mean by that word and i i agree with you that like there is obviously go, still going to be a deck that could pressure the opponent 
if you choose the Calliope aggro deck, then us saying aggro is not supported is not particularly useful. What, what I meant when we said that was that there were cards included in James's list that I considered to be not very playable because, to me, they only belong in a deck that has a critical mass of aggressive cards, and there was not enough in that cube for there to be a critical mass of them. So, so what I meant specifically was not that I'd wanted to, I didn't want to be playing a deck that wasn't proactive or I didn't want to be threatening my opponent. I meant... I don't want to play these eight one-drops that are included here because I don't think they're going to be successful in an environment where I can't get a density of those cards to make up for the fact that they're inherently not very powerful, right? I mean, one-mana spells inherently are not as powerful. I mean, this, again, comes out of the definition of power level. One-mana spells do not affect the game as much as higher-mana spells do because that's what mana is. It's a sort of limiting feature that decides how much impact a card can have. So... If you're going to fill your deck full of one-mana spells, you have to have some way to offset the fact that you are going to be playing worse cards than your opponents are. And what aggro is in many cubes is the idea that you just kill them before they can cast half the cards in their hand. And so you basically render their deck, many cards in their deck, useless by the fact that you have filled your deck with a bunch of less powerful cards that can kill them more quickly. All that is to say that, obviously, I think that there is a proactive or proactive strategies in James's cube that are very successful. I'm not even saying that I didn't want to be drafting those. What I meant when I said I don't want to be playing aggro, and maybe we should have clarified this, is that I, I don't want to be playing these one drops in my deck because I don't think they're going to get there. Right, yeah. So it's I think that's a really great way to, to describe it, that there is always going to be a fastest, most aggressive uh, strategy in, in any environment. But yeah, those specific cards, and there's one or two that I agree with, I, I just see are pretty unlikely to make it in my deck for those reasons in that cube. Because, you know, you're just not going to see that that game of, you know, Goblin Guide into Monastery Swift Spear and Lightning Bolt and then Sulfuric Vortex and just feel like the game is over on turn three. That is just, like, the specific kind of gameplay that we were thinking, that's probably not going to come up, so we can sort of change our strategy around that. Yeah, but playing James's Cube, I think Tempo was a very, very relevant axis, and it felt like a lot of the games... If I was able to sequence my spells early to get out ahead of my opponent, then I was in a very good position. And if I had my early sequence go wrong, either because I didn't have the right mana sources or because they had the right piece of disruption at the right time, once I was behind, it felt hard to come back from being behind. And that, that is, I think, that, that's, how, that's, that's why tempo is very relevant in that environment, for sure. Right. And I think that this is sort of what we're going to be figuring out through this discussion is that that's really valuable. Uh, the, the gameplay that we had in the... Uh, uh, commons and uncommons cube um, is in, in a lot of ways not great. Uh, it was it just felt like my decisions didn't really matter. It was sort of just over in the draft. Um, and, and I will also clarify like that experience I only had in that one match uh, against you. Uh, the other matches did feel very different. That specific game was just not that interesting um, because we could just sort of predict how it was going to go. And this tension between having to make choices between getting the most value out of your cards or being proactive and putting more pressure on your opponent faster is a really, really interesting and produ productive tension that really defines the way magic works altogether. Yeah. This is a thing I have observed about pauper and peasant environments, and sometimes just lower-powered environments in general, is that oftentimes when the cards are individually less impactful, tempo matters less. And I think some of the peasant or pauper cubes that I don't like as much, the games often devolve into that. And it just feels like the game was pretty much entirely over in the draft and deck building portion, which is not to, I mean, that's interesting in and of itself, right? Like if, if that's the case, then the draft and deck building is a very key part of this format and you should like have a lot of skill and be able to like do it properly. But oftentimes it feels like, all right, I'm just going to draw cards. I'm going to play threats on curve and hope that that's better than my opponent playing threats on curve. And we'll just find out who wins basically, because there are very few opportunities to make strategic plays that affect the outcome of the game. It's just whose cards are going to be better than, the, than our opponent's cards when we play them all out. Right. And we found out it was yours. Yeah. And that is that kind of inevitability is a thing I'm often thinking about when I'm drafting lower powered environments. It's like, if we just flipped our decks over, whose deck is going to be better? So that's what I drafted to basically accomplish. And to like balance this out, uh, this criticism out, because I mean, we've played Austin's Cube. So I think Austin's Cube is a great peasant cube, but one of my favorites actually. It still happens sometimes in that environment where it just comes down to playing your cards out and hoping it's good enough. But in my third match, I was playing against uh, another deck that in our first game, I won pretty handily on the axis of this inevitability. They were playing a, a more aggressive strategy. I was playing this like big mid-range strategy. And so pretty quickly, the game got to a state where like all my creatures are bigger. 
I was I had two for ones, but they didn't have two for ones, and it was very clear that like I was just going to lock up this game up. There was nothing they could possibly do about it, and so I felt pretty good. And then going into our second and third games, my opponent ended up sideboarding pretty heavily, which I didn't know per se, but they sideboarded really aggressively and took out as many of their aggro cards as they could and just sided into like bigger spells, you know, two for ones, that kind of stuff that is maybe below rate, but obviously those aggro cards were a huge liability against me because I had so many good blockers and had this like big mid-range threats. So they sided out and ended up winning the, the second two games that were also very kind of long, drawn-out, inevitability-style games, but I did not realize after the second game how substantially they had sideboarded because if I had realized just how many of those aggro cards they had taken out, I could have sided into even more greedy cards on my side that I wasn't playing, just play more five drops, just play less of the early blockers because they don't matter anymore because now we're both just playing this kind of like go big strategy. And I failed to recognize that and ended up losing that third game, I think, because of that. I, I just couldn't tell in the second game if my opponent had just drawn a grindier half of their deck but still had those aggressive cards in there. And so I kept some of my early disruption and early blockers that were less impactful cards in because I was worried about still dying to a curve out. And it turned out that if I had just, you know, cited in my uh, my Grizzly Fate and these other kinds of, like, big spells that just did a lot, then I, I probably would have had the upper hand in our, in our third game. So it's like, even though the gameplay might not be the interesting thing when games go down like this, uh, there are still strategic decisions to be made in deck building and, and sideboarding and drafting to make sure that you're set up for all sort of scenarios. There's a really interesting point you made in there about how if your opponent is slowing down their deck you can slow your deck down even more. Um, and I feel like that's often how, if, if there really aren't proactive strategies available in a cube, the, the metagame can really, really develop into just slowing down and slowing down, because if uh, if it's never really good, if it's never optimal to be proactive, just being bigger than your opponent is is kind of the optimal choice. And in that situation, we end this kind of like game theory equilibrium, where let's say that I had recognized after our second game that my opponent had taken all their aggressive cards out of their deck and was now just trying to like have more inevitability and more grindiness than I did. A perfect example of this is my opponent sided into Back for More, which is an instant from Akoria. It's six mana, four black green for a Zombify that when the creature enters the battlefield, it fights a creature your opponent controls. So this is a great example of a card that I think really, really struggles in an environment where your opponent is applying a lot of pressure because it's six mana, it's conditional on you having gotten a creature in the graveyard, and ideally it's conditional on you having gotten a creature in the graveyard that is better than any other six mana card you could be running, right? Like, this you have to, like, have a creature that you, when you bring it back, it's better than if you'd just been playing a random six drop creature in the same slot as back for more. So it has a lot of things that have to go right, but in our matchup where it was just super grindy games and no one was going to be putting a lot of pressure on each other, we knew we were going to get to 15 cards left in our library my opponent knew they could wait until they got a good creature in their graveyard and they could wait for an opportune moment to really blow me out with this kind of like two for one or three for one ability of back for more. And that's what the games kind of came down to. So what I was saying is if we imagine that I had recognized in game two, my opponent had taken this strategy, we'd taken all the aggressive cards out, sided in their back for mores. Then theoretically in game three, I should know, all right, now I need to like go even slower myself and slow down a bunch, which opens the door for my opponent to say, I bet my opponent is going to realize they're supposed to slow down more. I'm going to put the aggressive cards back in to now put pressure on them again because I think they're going to be planning for back for more, and so I'm going to put my you know aggressive white two jobs back in my deck, and that's how I'm going to win the game. So all of this is very interesting, right? And, and this is something that I think doesn't often get talked about in the cube world. There's a lot of talk about the gameplay and not as much talk about interesting sideboarding decisions or interesting how you draft your deck to make sure you're set up to win in all possible situations. But that is something that I think happens in environments where tempo is not relevant, is your decisions in your draft and deck building and sideboarding are that much more important because you are offered less decisions in the gameplay to affect the outcome of the game. Yeah, and then that, that other point that you just made about how uh, we can have this sort of uh, situation, which, which I think we both agree is not productive, like doesn't lead to the best experience when the format slows down, like the metagame slows down, slows down, slows down, and it's just about being greedy. But when you can also have that tension between, well, if you're too greedy, suddenly these proactive strategies actually become better against the metagame again. And there's that sort of interesting cycle. And I think um, really all cubes are like that. There is a self-balancing point. The question is, where does that self-balancing end up? Where's the equilibrium, right? And how, how greedy are the greedy decks right. on one side and how proactive are the proactive decks on the other side that they hold each other in balance? And, you know, I think in some cubes, 
the proactive deck is closer to like a greedy deck in my cube, which is very, very fast environment where I really prioritize tempo. And so your decision as a cube designer is not, do I prioritize tempo or not? You don't get to decide that. Uh, you just get to decide with your card choices kind of where that equilibrium is going to be. Right. And I think it definitely can fail. In a lot of ways, we always encourage people by saying cube is self or draft is self-correcting. That equilibrium will find its place and people can react to it. You can basically just put whatever pile of cards you want together and it'll work and be a cube. But I definitely also experienced the the fail case in my first cube, or my main cube when I first designed it, where I really, really de-emphasized a lot of these proactive strategies because it just didn't seem as fun. But even if even if you're not the person playing it seven times out of eight, it's still really important to have those proactive strategies there in order for that like healthy metagame to uh, to be there so you can have those really strategic and interesting moments. Right, and what I mean by that is like you recognize that as a fail case in the sense that this is not the environment you intended to create that you ended up playing. But it's not that there right. was no proactive deck in that environment. It's just that the proactive deck was still very slow and grindy. And it was a question of like, you know, that equilibrium was just too far to one side for your taste. And so the, all the matches were going to time and it was just taking a super long time to resolve these games. And you just had to kind of move that back to your own sort of preference. It's never that, that there is no balancing act. It's never that you're just supposed to go as greedy as possible. Back to my first point, like in that environment, you would literally just like take the highest CMC card out of every pack. And like, like if, if, if being proactive literally didn't matter, it would just be which of these cards has the biggest impact on the game and my greatest effect on me being able to win mana cost aside, you know, colors aside, just which card is most impactful. Uh, and I've never seen a cube that is so far to the extreme of that. Right. I guess, I guess the real extreme would be when the, uh, there are no mill cards, but mill is the premier. Yeah, you archetype. just want to go second and mulligan to four, so you have a bigger deck, and then that's that's where it gets really bleak. Is this a new cube idea? Uh, let's not. Let's not. Let's just not. <laughs> we've we've talked about so many weird hypothetical cubes, and we've ended up making lists. Our our listeners are making lists. I've got a couple one life cube lists to send you. People have sent us. So yeah, it's uh, it's all happening. Oh, nice. So. Tempo is something that's really important to me in my own cube design. I think we should spend just a second here to try and define what tempo is. We've been talking kind of around it, which I think is something that happens a lot with tempo in the magic world because it's so difficult to define. But how would you define tempo, Anthony? I'm going to put it to you. I mean, I think it really does come down to that core thing of uh, just being able to... No, it's it's a hard thing to describe. It is. It's very hard to describe, which is um, why we. I think it's a little bit fuzzy in in the in the community in terms of exactly what this means and i hear people use the word in a way that i wouldn't agree with a lot of the time where it's like oh if your deck has blue spells in it then it's a tempo deck it's like well i don't know i don't think so but how would you describe it then? i think it is maybe easiest to describe uh countering it against uh like as the opposite end of an axis with value on the other side so on one hand we could say well value plays are plays that are all about just giving you the most for your resources so Casting a divination on turn three, or waiting until turn seven to be able to cast uh, both sides of my adventure, or uh, both sides of my fuse split card, whatever it is. And on the other side of the spectrum is, I just want to be proactive and kill my opponent. Uh, it doesn't actually matter if I generate a lot of value in terms of drawing extra cards, or making the biggest creatures, or whatever. I just want to focus on killing my opponent as quickly as possible. A lot of cards that fall to that uh, other side of the spectrum that get talked about a lot are things like bounce spells because they are generating basically no value by spending a card Negative to return value. a creature to your hand. You still have that creature you can replay. I'm down a card, but what it does do is, uh, again, I'm exchanging that for just being able to pressure you harder and hopefully close out the game before you have an opportunity to redeploy that creature. Yeah, I mean, we have not talked about this, but your definition is almost exactly the same as my definition. For me, tempo yeah. is best understood in my head as the opposite of card advantage or value because i think card advantage and value are more concretely understandable in magic terms right card advantage you can calculate right. for a given spell it's like all right well i play this card it's a two for one it's a three for one right and you can you can explain to somebody who's relatively new that like the cards are an important resource in the game if you get to cast more cards and do more then you are more likely to win than if you don't and tempo is for me when that heuristic that idea of card advantage is what matters breaks down and you generate all the card advantage in the world and you still lose because of, of tempo and i think you gave a great example like unsummon is, is the perfect example it's like it only costs one mana so unless you're returning something to your opponent's hand that only costs one mana you are ahead on tempo in the sense that your opponent invested more resources more mana to cast some threat 
you bounced it and for only one mana put it back in their hand you're down on cards they're they're up on cards you spent a whole card to, to not affect their card advantage right they, you just moved a thing from one zone to another and your opponent now is down on whatever tempo they used to cast the spell and if it was a two drop then it's one thing if it was their eight drop avison then you, they're probably really far behind because you just really negated a bunch of that value and so i think if we're going to measure card advantage in cards, I think the closest thing we have in tempo is is mana. I mean, mana mana is what defines the speed of a game, right? It, it's the limiting factor in Magic that says you can't just play your eight drop on turn one. Well, most of the time, <laughs> but you know, the, in most games of Magic they increase in power level as the game goes on because we're allowed to play one land a turn, and so that's how things sort of progress. Anything that interacts with with mana in that way i think is 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 interacting on the tempo axis now, so another great example which is a realization that uh, i only had a few years ago which really changed the way i think about some decks in my cube is that ramp spells are tempo spells to me right they, they, they are using tempo to their advantage which is to say that alanoar elves like a one one with no abilities or no like combat abilities no you know flying or whatever is a really bad card in my cube. You would never play a 1-1, one, one, vanilla 1-1 one, one in my cube. It's just awful. And so it's not really worth a card. It's, it's So you, when you play a Lanoir Elves, you are not playing it because you have a creature on board. You're playing it because you want an additional mana next turn, and that's going to be a big tempo advantage for you because playing a 3-drop ahead of schedule uh, is going to be how you're going to get a leg up in the game and put your opponent on their back foot because it's just card disadvantage to play Alanoir Elves. Same goes for a Signet. Same goes much more obviously for a Dark Ritual or something, like a spell that literally doesn't affect the board, but just gives you a bunch of mana. And so I think when these cards are good, it's is when tempo matters. And when those cards suffer, is in an environment where tempo doesn't matter. And we actually had this conversation with, with regards to this Peasant Cube. I rate the ramp creatures very, very low in this Peasant Cube, which is weird because... You know, Peasant has access to a lot of the one-mana mana dorks and two-mana mana dorks that I play in my own much more powerful, you know, vintage cube, but I don't take them very aggressively in the Peasant cube because I think the context has changed and I don't want to spend a whole card to be ahead one mana. I don't think it's worth it in that environment. That makes a ton of sense. Um, and I think your example of the Signets also sort of is implying something else that's really important, um, is that any deck you're drafting doesn't commit any one direction or another. So you can say, well, I'm playing this control deck. I want to play this Signet on turn two. That is a value loss because you're spending a card just to be able to get another card into play faster. Yeah, you just made a fragile um, land but, called Signet. Yeah, but being able to get your Planeswalker in a turn earlier before your opponent has an ability to actually get enough creatures on the board to be able to interact with it might mean you can actually recoup that value and generate more value uh, in the long run by being able to get things into play faster. Yeah, this is the other thing I think is really important for me in my understanding of tempo and also I think is one of the things that makes it really hard to define, which is that I actually don't think that you can look at a deck in isolation and say whether or not this deck is trying to abuse tempo. Okay, tempo only exists in relationship to your opponent and what they're doing. It is a thing that only exists between two decks. And also to that end, I think in any cube environment, like a tempo is a truth of the environment overall and every deck has to care about it. Not every deck has to care about card right. advantage, right? Like, your aggro decks don't care about card advantage. That's kind of their whole thing. Like, they are only going to be pressuring your opponent. But control decks have to care about tempo just as much as they care about card advantage because they're going to be playing other decks that are going to care about that tempo. And so if they want to not lose every single match to aggro, then they have to also care about tempo. And so tempo is just kind of... it's We can't just look at a deck and say, there's a tempo deck and there's not a tempo deck. We can't just look at a card and say, there's a tempo card and there's not a tempo card because it's all contextual and it's all in relationship to the entire meta. The other aspect of this that maybe is just like super obvious and implied, but Magic is a game that has a structure. You can't look at any game in, a, in any point in the game and say, well, this is just like any other hand, any other turn. The game has this, this growth of players getting more and more mana, being able to cast more and more expensive things. And it's because of that structure uh, and the fact that, you know, the, the game is going to play out in this somewhat linear way where people are going to start at 20, they're eventually going to end up at zero, that that timing and that speed really matters. So like I mentioned, this is a really, I feel like in some ways my cube has been an exploration in how, just how much tempo can matter because I, I try to avoid the kinds of games we had with Alice's Peasant Cube where it's just like, play out your cards, hope it's good enough. And that's not because I think they're inherently worse necessarily. Like I said, there's a lot of interesting strategic decisions to be made in the draft, in the deck building, in the sideboarding to affect those games' outcomes because you have less control of the actual game itself. But in my own cube, I'm interested in kind of pushing as far the other direction as I can without delving into stuff like combo. And like, in some ways, 
like degenerate combo decks are the most tempo kinds of strategies because Lulu doesn't matter how many cards in their hand. The card advantages are completely irrelevant to most combo decks. All they need is their combo pieces and how they get them is what matters. But I've made a lot of decisions in my cube to try and emphasize tempo. And so I'm going to talk through what those are. And then I'm curious to know, Anthony, how tempo has impacted any of the decisions you've made in your own cube and cards you've run or, or not run for whatever reason. So things we've talked about in the show before that longtime listeners will know, I really don't like tap lands. And a big reason is because of, of tempo. I think that when you are forced to play a tap land at a moment where you'd rather not play a tap land because you have something to do with that mana, you oftentimes fall very behind on tempo because you essentially kind of like time walked yourself, right? Where you were going to play this three drop on turn three, but you drew your tap land instead of a non-tap land. Now you like literally have to wait a whole turn to play that three drop. You're a whole turn behind where you wanted to be because you had to do this thing. And there are ways to mitigate that, but that's that's one of the reasons I'm I'm against tap lands you know, almost as a matter of course. And in the past 12 months, I have added a couple in because I've recognized an important fact, which is that the first couple tap lands are not that much of a cost because it's not too hard to imagine a game where you find one turn where, you know, you had a, a, a loose mana, something you couldn't do, it, do with your mana on that turn and you can afford to play a tap land at basically no cost. But was it density increases like every additional tap land is an increasingly steep cost because it just is means you have to find more and more turns where you were not going to play things on curve in order to fit these tap lands into uh, into your schedule and so so as of right now i think i have like six in my cube so i'll push back a little bit because we already just made the point that tempo doesn't really matter in a vacuum it only matters uh, relative to other decks so if you have a cube that has a bunch of tap lands if all players are, are forced to play with them there's not actually really a difference. Like, I don't think you're time wa- time walking yourself in that sense. I think that's a little bit extreme. Well, but what I mean, though, um, is that, like, yes, everything is relative. What I mean is that playing tap lands that every deck has access to pushes all of those decks, pushes that equilibrium to the right, like, or to, you know, to right or left, towards, towards the value it does change this. It does change the speed, for sure. Um, and these things are obviously related. So I think that when you're playing at the sort of, like, power level in terms of just, like, the efficiency of individual cards, as you are in your cube, it makes sense that it's, like, a pretty big drawback to have tap lands. Whereas in my cube, which maybe we'll get to later, but... Uh, a big part is there's a lot of these tap lands that I think are just really interesting cards in themselves. So I definitely tried to design an environment where that can sort of like mitigate that that cost. Totally. And it, it's it's not a, a value judgment. I just mean that like because I'm trying to push my cube as far in the high tempo r- way as possible, that's why tap lands just I feel like they move that equilibrium to the right for every deck, you know, relative to each other. So So that's one decision I've made to try and minimize that. Another decision is I really like cheap spells, the low CMC spells. So I, I will hold my one mana spells to a much lower bar than my three and four mana spells. It, if it, a three and four has to be really, really like excellent to make its way into my cube, I mean, even more so anything costs five or six mana, whereas one and twos, I'm happy to kind of like, especially ones, really, I'm happy to slot in wherever I can because not only do they make sure that you can use your mana on every turn, and again, I think if we're talking about tempo on this axis of, you know, advantage or card advantage or value on one end, tempo on the other, I think tempo is most closely concretely defined as just using your mana every turn. And that's why, in in some ways, I think that, like, a a ponder is a card that helps the tempo of your control deck. Most control decks don't really have anything to do on turn one. You're not going to be playing out a threat because your whole plan is to go inevitably long, and so you don't want a one-mana threat, which is inherently not that impactful. You probably don't want to remove something on turn one immediately because you're not under that much of pressure and you want to wait for their board to develop a little bit so you can decide how to use your removal strategically. You probably, in most environments, don't want to counter something on turn one. I mean, when the power level gets really pushed, you will probably want to do that. But most of the time, you're not going to be worried about holding up counter magic on turn one. And so ponders and preordains and these one mana cantrips basically help your deck continue to do something, use its mana to benefit itself in a turn where it otherwise wouldn't do anything. That is why I like the sort of cheap spells so much. And in addition to being something you can play on turn one and keep using all your mana, they are something you can also, on later turns, you know, slot in where, like, here's a turn where I've got five mana, but actually I need to play this four mana board wipe because I'm just, even though I have a five mana Planeswalker, I need to wipe the board first because that's just how this game has played out. That means that fifth mana is now, again, not wasted. You still get to use that mana to make sure that your continued draws are sort of high quality. And so not including tap lands or having them have to pass a really high bar and then really prioritizing cheap spells because even if you look at, you know, a card like Sleight of Hand, I, mean, I think a lot of cube designers recognize the power of Ponder or Preordain. I see less people playing Sleight of Hand, which is a worse version of that card. But 
even that I really liked for the reasons I just mentioned. Being able to play a turn one cantrip, even if it's one of the worst turn one cantrips, or being able to use all of your mana on a later turn of the game, even if it's for a you know relatively insignificant advantage as compared to a ponder or preordain, is a very valuable trait for my sort of blue decks, which I which I really value highly. Then I also really like scalable cards for similar reasons. I mean, again, tempo is all about using your mana efficiently, and scalable cards slot into your curve at any point. And so this is an example where this is a tempo consideration that I think actually mostly applies to more proactive decks. Uh, where I was talking about cantrips and you know ramp spells and things like that, but being able to have your Stone Coil Serpent as filling your slot anywhere on the curve on an aggro deck to make sure you get the most value out of your mana, as opposed to only having a two drop on your turn four where you have four mana. The scalable spells, like the sort of cheap spells and cantrips, just let you use all of your mana more often. And so I really like scalable spells for the same reason. And then the last section is just ramp, which is included in most cubes of a high power level because it's one of the most powerful things that green especially can do. But uh, I do really like having a very ramp-forward green section because I think it changes the the tempo of the games that people are playing in that when your opponent can threaten to play a 3-drop on turn 2 or a 5-drop on turn 3, your whole card evaluation has changed pretty dramatically, and the way you sequence your plays has to be changed pretty dramatically. Some people have these really mid-range forward green sections where even at, like, 2 mana, they're just playing cards that only threaten their opponent instead of you know, trying to continue to accrue resources. And really all my two drops in green are about ramping in some way or blocking and ramping. Because what I want my green to do is basically really push the tempo of the game to get to that later stage very, very quickly and force their opponents to have an answer to a five drop on turn three or four and and keep it that way. So those are kind of the like suite of decisions I've made. And there's a lot of things that follow from those core decisions so once i'm running a bunch of cheap creatures and a bunch of cheap cantrips then you know things that trigger when you cast a spell or small board wipes like pyroclasm like those things all become much better and so it's kind of a spiderweb effect of like i made these core decisions about my cube because i wanted to prioritize tempo and then that means that other cards become good and playable because of sort of knock-on effects down down the chain from my experience uh, like we sort of talked about the first iteration of my cube was just not uh, didn't support enough proactive strategies so Value really was the name of the game, and there were a lot of ways that you really could like put together these synergistic cards to end up just beating your your opponent through overwhelming card advantage. So that's just like the biggest broadest stroke is I've still within the sort of very specific restrictions I'm I'm sort of imposing upon myself, pushing these proactive strategies as much as possible. I think one of the reasons I sort of fell into this issue is I definitely want my cube to be a little bit more about synergy. It's not just about individual cards that uh, are powerful, but drafting a deck that's more than some of its parts while avoiding this like really distinct like two color pair archetypes so you have this sort of on rails experience it's more just like a couple little overlapping synergies where you can build a deck that that adds up to more than the sum of its parts but i think it's really easy when thinking about cards in that way to mostly end up in these sort of um very much value-oriented strategies. It's much more easy to think about, what's this card called? I'm going to start blinking uh, my Chupacabra or uh, my... Why can't I remember the names of cards? Your Fibblethip. <laughs> it's so hard. Blinking your Fibblethip or your Watcher for Tomorrow with your Soul Herder and sort of generating this infinite value engine of drawing a ton of cards. That's very easy to sort of come up with and think about uh, while you're drafting and building your deck in this sort of synergy space. But there is also a lot of opportunity to make cards and synergies that are much more about tempo in the same way. So I really like some of these mechanics like Heroic and Prowess that actually just let you by getting cards in the right order and combining them end up putting a lot of pressure on your opponent. And there is a big drawback to that that I see where it's if you're playing a slower game where your plan is to, you know, eventually on turn eight get your value engine set up. That's pretty low risk, and hopefully, you know, you're mitigating that risk with some early interaction. When you're trying to be proactive and synergistic, you can definitely draw your cards in the wrong order, and your deck just doesn't function as well. So admittedly, like, that's also related to the reason that I'm choosing a much lower power level, uh, a little bit slower speed, so those proactive strategies uh, aren't quite as punished for, for missing a beat. Yeah, and, like, there are costs to everything, right? Like, I'm describing why I, like, pushing the tempo of my cube as, as fast as I, as I can within reason, and the, the costs are that I can't really play anything that costs three mana. I mean, even the things that cost three mana that don't immediately 
have some value, even if they end up getting removed, become a bit of a liability. Certainly anything at four or more like needs to have some immediate interactive impact in order to be worth it in my queue because all of these cheap spells, I run lots of cheap interaction. You just can't afford to dump four or five mana into something and then just have it doombladed or whatever. It just, uh, it's too huge of a tempo loss, right? Like that is only a one for one in the card advantage equation. If you play your Elder Gargaroth and somebody doomblades it, it's a one for one. But we all know that's horrible for you because they spent five mana on the one for one and you only spent two mana on the one for one. So you're, you're way ahead of your opponent in that situation. And so because I want to prioritize tempo so much, I just I, I oftentimes see a cool card that it's like, I sure would like to play this card. It's very interesting and cool, but costs four mana and doesn't immediately do something that is almost worth that four mana that even if it gets removed, is it's not going to be a huge downside for me that I just can't play. We, we talked about Doom Whisperer in this opening, uh, in our pack one pick one this week. That's a card that I was super excited about when it was spoiled because... I felt like it was filling this slot that was empty in my cube for a long time. I, I love paying life, and so I love the fact that it paid life. It, it felt to me like a little mini Grizzlebrand where you could play it and then dump a bunch of life into it to like set up your draws for the next couple turns if you needed to. And in reality, it ended up being just awful. Like There's just so much cheap interaction in my cube that five mana into something that maybe lets you pay some life to like ponder you know, is just really not worth it. Uh, and so even though it's a card I kind of like, I just can't afford to play it in my environment, which is a cost of what I'm of what I'm doing. Similar, Anthony, like all of the synergistic stuff you're describing, if your opponent has a bunch of cheap interaction, they can just pick apart your little synergy engine and say, okay, fine, you can have your little dinky oh, thing totally. that enters the battlefield, but I'm not going to let you have your soul herder, uh, or I'm not going to let you have, you know, whatever this kind of key piece is. And so you're trying to build this cool engine of something, and if your opponent just has the right answers and they're all cheap, then you just don't get to do your thing, and your deck ends up playing as badly as possible at every interaction. So it's like... I like doing all those things, right? Like I, I like building the the value engine decks that can like assemble cards in a really novel way to become more than the sum of their parts. And I also like playing really efficient, cutthroat, high tempo magic where every single decision is very important and you have to decide very carefully whether to play this card or that card. And it's I think it's an important thing to accept as a cube designer that like no cube can be all things. <laughs> you, you can't have it all. And so I think you're always trying to making sacrifices when you decide where you want to be on this spectrum. I really like this idea of Segovian Gristlebrand. I hope we see that in Modern Horizons too. <laughs> well, what would it be? A little tiny Gristlebrand. Just a little itty bitty. There's a two mana, uh, two two with flying and lifelink, and you can pay two life to draw two cards. That'd be totally fair. Easy, no problem. Yeah, no problem with that. So another thing I think it's worth mentioning is even though a lot of individual cards, or you know, more importantly, like situations in the game, fall on this tempo or value axis, it doesn't mean it's practical or even feasible to put every card into one of these buckets. Um, so, for example, in this uh, draft we did uh, last week, I was playing, like, Ninja of the Deep Hours, which feels kind of like a tempo-y card. Like, all right, it fits well with a lot of tempo-y cards, especially, because it gets in for extra damage when your opponent isn't expecting it, And but then at the same time, it also starts drawing you cards. So it kind of does a little bit of both, um, and what's, I think, really fun about playing that card is it allows you to play these sort of cheap interactive tempo spells that actually force through that damage and then rewards you by recouping some of that uh, value loss by drawing you extra cards. That like relationship, I think, is core to tempo. I think you have to decide what you're going to use your tempo advantage for. Some decks use it to just kill their opponent. Other decks use it to more quickly get into play things that will accrue value. So the ramp decks we talked about, the whole reason that ramp is good in my cube is not because one mana mana dorks are inherently good. Because as we just established, they're not great in the peasant cube because I don't want to be spending a whole card just to get ahead by one mana. In my cube, though, you just get to dump a, a Planeswalker on turn three or four. That's a five-mana Planeswalker. Right. And then immediately start accruing just gobs and gobs of card advantage because that's what Planeswalkers are. They're just little card advantage engines. And so that's what is, is relevant, right? Uh, like removing a blocker to get into damage, to draw some more cards. Like that is always the sort of question of tempo. It's like, what are you doing with it? What makes it valuable? For another example, I think a card that we both like a lot is uh, Dreadhorde Arcanist. And in my cube, you really get to do all the sort of goofy synergy stuff you want about casting Giant Growth and recasting a Burn spell from your graveyard and removing a blocker. And, you know, it's it's hard to say, well, is that a value play because I'm getting to cast a bunch of extra cards? Or is it a tempo play because I'm using this to push through damage and remove blockers? And it can just be a good play. It doesn't, not everything has to be perfectly in one bucket or the other. Right, yeah, I think of Dreadhorde Arcanist as a purely value card because what it itself does is it lets you you play a one three which is not great in legacy for two mana 
But what it lets you do is just basically draw another card every turn you can attack, right? You just get to play another card from your graveyard and just kind of go off because there's so many one-mana spells in, in Legacy. If you use it to flashback tempo spells, then yeah, now you're, now you're doing both again, right? You're, you're using your value right. engine to get tempo, and then that's when you have a really powerful thing that you're, you're, you've kind of assembled. To your point where you said earlier, like, cards do not fit cleanly into categories. So... There are cards that I think very often are going to be generating value or tempo, right? And I mean, value is actually easier. There are cards that just generate card advantage, right? And that's just a thing that they do, and it's hard to deny. Divination's almost never going to be a tempo play. Yes, pretty much. Yeah, it's hard to imagine a situation where it's a tempo play. I mean, I guess actually, in some ways, divination, if you're playing control deck, has nothing to do on three mana because the meta you're in doesn't have any answers or threats you want to play on three and it's a slower meta where you just always want to get to your board wipe on four then divination is kind of a tempo relevant play because you're saying i'm not going to use this mana otherwise let me just use it here to draw some cards uh and, and get a little value and that becomes tempo relevant maybe you really need to get to seven cards so you can turn on your library of alexandria does that count I, yeah i mean it's the thing is like <laughs> it, tempo is so fundamental magic that it touches so many things that you can't just it's not black and white and like another example of this is that Removal and counter magic, most interaction very often ends up being a kind of tempo-oriented thing. One for one interaction, at least, because again, you're you're inherently going one for one with your opponent. You're countering a single spell. You're removing a single threat. So it's only good for you, really, if you are gaining some tempo advantage. And so that's why the cheap interaction and the cheap counter magic is almost always better than the more expensive kind, because what's important is that you come out ahead on mana in that interaction. If you counter, if you use literal counter spell, you you counter spell on their one mana spell, which you have to do sometimes because the board, the game dictates it, then you're not ahead on tempo. It's very likely that your opponent is ahead on tempo because they just spent one mana to force you to use your counter spell and now they've opened up their next play, which you can't counter anymore because you had to stop them from doing their one mana thing, whatever it was that was too important, you had to counter it. Those, like a counter spell is not inherently a tempo thing. Uh, it is, it can be tempo advantage if you, temp, if you counter something that costs more mana, but it's not always that. Sometimes it does other stuff. Sometimes you counter something cheaper for whatever reason. So, these things are not black and white, and that makes it very hard for people to, like, understand what tempo is and how it works. But I think we've kind of gone over a pretty nice... I think this is a nice little primer on it. Primer, sorry. I think primer. so. So for me, really the sweetest spot uh, in terms of individual cards is cards that really can play both sides. So just picking another example out of my own cube uh, is Hobble Fiend, which lets you basically sacrifice your other creatures to put counters on it, and you can grow it. And that really lets you play both ways, depending on the situation. You can just sit back and wait for your opponent to cast removal spells, and then get that little bit of extra value by being able to recoup a counter from each one. Or, on a different board state, you might just say, well, I'm close to lethal, I'm just going to start eating all my creatures that aren't able to get through, put counters on my trampling creature, and, and finish you off. So to me, again, like that tension applies to the whole game and cr really creates the structure of a game of magic. But also having it self-contained in individual cards really enables that, that interplay as much as possible. Yeah, I, I guess it's the best way to describe how I want to prioritize tempo in my cube. I want people to have a firm grip on that axis and be able to decide, do I want to push my tempo advantage? Or do I want to sort of sit back and try and generate a value advantage? And basically give them as many options along the sort of full range of that spectrum as they possibly can have. Whereas in some environments, like the peasant cube we just described, sometimes I feel like I don't really have any option to, to grab tempo by the reins and, and you know push that. I really just have to lean on value because this environment is so tilted that direction that I don't have as much control over wanting to prioritize that if, 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 I'm, if I'm trying to play optimally. Yeah, I mean, that, that reminds me, maybe we've even missed the most obvious example of, of a tempo play is, you have a 3-3 three, three and I have four two twos. Can I make that attack? It depends. Like, do I think I'm going to win the game on tempo by sacrificing one of my creatures to get more damage through? Or do I need to actually be able to get more value by double blocking so I can trade up my creatures? Yeah, creature combat, I think, is so fundamental to magic that things just come back to it all the time. And that's, I think... This, this whole conversation about tempo is one of the reasons why creature combat is so interesting. That example you gave is a great example of it's not always abundantly clear whether it's worth trading a creature for some damage, and you have to decide that based on all the factors that are going on in the game, and your opponent gets to make their own decisions, of course, and that's just what makes magic interesting. For sure. All right, let's, um, I want to just cite a couple of sources for people that want to read more about tempo. So I really, I think the best article on tempo I've ever found is by Reed Duke posted on the Mothership, and it's just called Tempo in all caps. I will, I will put it in the, in the show notes. It's from like uh, seven years ago, it looks like now, six, seven years ago. But it describes, I think, pretty concretely what Tempo is, and it's probably the most 
close thing we have to a canonical publicly available resource to describe what Tempo is. So I'll link that in the show notes. The other thing I want to point people to is we haven't talked about it in the show before, but there are elements of Patrick Chapin's book, Next Level Deck Building, which I really appreciate and come back to a lot. Um, I don't, not all of that I think is particularly useful. There's some sections of the book that I, I kind of disagree with and I think is uh, maybe not the best way to explain a concept, but the, the way that Tempo is kind of woven throughout that entire book, especially the sort of early sections, I think is a very good resource there. You know, that, that was the first place that I saw somebody basically describe Tempo as mana, and that, that that's how you think about Tempo. Like, Tempo is almost always a mana advantage, unless it's a, you know, killing your opponent immediately advantage. So that's a, a good resource, I think, too, if people want to do it. It's, a, um, it's available as a PDF online. You can buy it from Star City Games. You can also buy the print copy, the print version from Star City Games if you want. But uh, I think if you really care about Magic, it's worth the 20 or 30 bucks and supporting a, a pro Magic player to, uh, to get that book and, and read it. We forgot to talk about Remand. Oh, boy, what a beautiful card. Do you want to <laughs> just close this out, Anthony, on a little, a little love letter to Remand? Uh, no, that's definitely your territory. What? Why? I just want to play green cards. Okay, sure. Well, so here's this. Let's compare a little bit. I just want to compare Remand and Memory Lapse. Have you ever spent a lot of time just thinking about these two cards and which one's better and why? Oh, for sure. But my brain is also broken from trying to play Memory Lapse in a battle box. Mm, yeah, it does. that does mess you up a little bit. So, I mean, just for our listeners, I, mean, I think people probably know what Remand does, but this is a, a counterspell, kind of. <laughs> it's one in a blue to return target spell to an opponent's hand, and then you draw a card. So, it is a great example of a value even, right? Your opponent is not up or down on cards. You're not up or down on cards because you replace the Remand with the card you drew. All it does is generate a tempo advantage or disadvantage. Remanding a one drop is not a tempo advantage, for example. But if you get to remand something more expensive, uh, it's, it's a pretty good little advantage. And then Memory Lapse is a one and a blue counter spell that just says, instead of countering that spell, put it on top of your opponent's library, which in some ways is almost exactly the same, right? Your opponent are also not up or down on cards. You're, you're both down one because you used your counterspell and they, used, they lost their threat. But they're going to get their threat back next turn and then you're going to draw another card next turn the same way you would draw a card off remand. And yet these cards are so different in the actual way they play out in the game because remand is this card that you are happy to use kind of whenever. Like anytime on curve, you just kind of remand something draw a card, like, keep going with your strategy. It's this great little, like, speed bump that you can just kind of insert wherever. It's good on their early plays. It's good on their late plays. It just always works uh, in the way the card is supposed to work. Where it's not good is, like, super late game. If your opponent has, you know, a threat and then the resources just cast it twice in a turn, that's where remand becomes a little bit of a problem because you put it back in their hand, they can immediately recast it, and then it's not looking as good as it was in the early game. Memory Lapse, on the other hand, is kind of the opposite. It's really really good in the late game like it is in fact almost always a time walk in the late game because if your opponent didn't play a land for the turn they drew a card play their threat and you put it back on top of their library now their next turn is going to look exactly the same as this turn looked with no difference probably and you just kind of got to do that for two mana but in the early game the fact that it doesn't draw you a card and instead just puts their threat on top of their library often means that if they had another land to play out anyway then you really didn't have any impact on the game, right? You just basically bought yourself a turn, kind of, but they also might just skip that card they were going to play and play the next biggest card up their curve. The nuance between Remand and Memory Lapse really comes down to lands. And what Remand lets you do is it helps you continue to hit your, your land drops and doesn't really care about your opponent's land drops. And what Memory Lapse does is it really rewards you if you get to the late game where your opponent is not hitting their land drops anymore and that it's not a part of their turn and it really punishes you in the early game when they had extra lands already and now they just it didn't really matter to them that you you know put their thing on top of their library well put definitely more nuanced than i could be i'm not sure if it was well put i feel like it wasn't perfectly explained but i i love both those cards i think remand is overall the better card because well remand is, is a card that's better in an environment where tempo is more relevant because it is less risky or less likely to be it's remand is a better spell to cast earlier on cheaper threats and uh, memory lapse is much better on more expensive threats well i guess i guess they're both good on expensive threats god i'm getting all twisted and turned around here it's complicated <laughs> remand and memory lapse they're fun and i like them this has been lucky paper radio we're going off the rails here so we got to stop recording before we start saying some wild shit 
That's been the show. If you have a question for us or a topic we could possibly cover on the show, please email it to mail at luckypaper.co. And if you uh, want to record a little voice memo and send it into us, we can even play your voice memo on the show and you too can have your voice on Lucky Paper Radio. We're always looking for input from the audience and what you want to hear about because it helps us remain relevant. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. Thank you, James, for the sick beats. Thank you, everyone out there, for listening. And thank you, Anthony, for talking about magic with me. Do you think this episode was a tempo episode or a value episode? Hmm. Podcast tempo. We did talk about podcast tempo earlier because we actually we, we started recording. Then you had a little bit of a technical issue. And we were like, well, do we just keep going and I can edit it out? Or do we start back over again to get get in the rhythm? We decided to, to focus on the tempo. So I think this is probably, I mean, ideally, this is a little bit of both, Anthony. This is the Dreadhorde Arcanist of, of uh, podcast episodes. It lets you get a little bit of tempo, a little bit of value. Tasty mix. It's not, it's not that ridiculous of a question, right? Like, part of what I think makes <laughs> podcasts valuable is, like, we, the, the ritual. The fact that we're always there to fill a little time in your day. You just gotta, you gotta use up your mana on turn three. You gotta use up that hour of your commute. And so, how are you gonna do it? You're gonna fill it in with whatever, whatever podcast episode we just came out with. And so, the fact that we put them out reliably, that's the tempo of the podcast. Now, the value is when we record something that is so so uh, insightful and so smart that people keep referring back to it later on. It becomes this canonical sort of resource. People can link back to it and return to it in the future, and it becomes this sort of value to people. And so, is this episode going to like cross all the way into value? I'm not sure, but I can say for sure we're going to put it out on time, and so it is a tempo episode. Maybe it could be both. Wow, that was more than I expected. They were playing way too loud anyway, right? Could you even hear the woodblock? Right at the end.